0: was thinking about the Yule log. What is up with the Yule log? What is going on here? Does that not look tasty? I mean, what? that's a spectacular version of the Yule log. And I was like, well, what is Yule? What does it even mean? We have so many Christmas traditions that we, we practice and celebrate, and some of you may have grown up with this Yule log mindset, at least I think everybody has probably had a piece of the Yule log cake, but why do we do this and what does it mean? We shouldn't just go through Christmas and have traditions that are mindless. We should ask, why are there lights on our tree? Why is there a tree in our house? Why do we adorn it with ornaments and memories of years gone by? Why do we put presents under the tree? All of this has meaning the star on the top of the tree, and on down the line. So many of our Christmas traditions we have inherited from years before, and, and uh, trying to trace them back is actually kind of challenging. Um, a lot of them track back to Germany and Reformation days. Martin Luther had a hand in, in some of those things. I think many a house burned down back in the day because they actually had open flame on trees that were hung upside down from the rafters. And uh, Thankfully, we don't do that anymore. Um, But this Yule log, let me tell you a little about the Yule log. I had an interesting experience as I was studying this week for the sermon. The Yule log is uh, kind of a convoluted pushing together of a a number of different things. In the 4th century, uh, the church instituted a 12-day feast called the Feast of the Nativity or Epiphany, and it corresponded with the celebration of of a pagan um, ritual or, or um, kind of a c- celebration called Sol Invictus. Now, this was also known as the return of the invincible son. And so the church was like, you know what? Some things just need to be reclaimed. And this, this celebration was pagan and it was dark, but the church said, let's make it, let's, let's, let's reclaim some stuff here. And so they laid hold of this moment and in connection with this winter solstice, which, by the way, is Thursday, for those of you who are like, boy, it seems dark, right? <laughs> You're right. The darkest or the, the, the day with the least amount of light is this Thursday. And we feel that in Western Washington this time of year. They felt it back then as well. Um, and so the church kind of pushed this together and sought to reclaim. This became known then as the 12 days of Christmas. We have a lot of songs that kind of speak to these rituals. Christians then adapted aspects of the pagan holiday in a sense to reclaim them. So is, is Christmas pagan? No, it's not. It's what you want it to be. We are free, right? Make Christmas special. And so uh, some of these things, and you, you can see how easy it was to take a title of a celebration like Return of the Invincible Son as believers and Turn it into something awesome, like SON, return of the invincible, death can't hold him, son. So Yuletide tracks back to a German celebration that was on their lunar calendar. Um, and Yule has been associated now, or Yule tide, is the equivalent of Christmas time. So Yule tide. Carols being sung by a fire, right, and on down the line. That's what it means. It's a, it's a Christmas time tradition. So the Yule log was practiced, especially in Europe, was the practice. Um, on Christmas Day, beginning on Christmas Day, a very large uh, tree would be portioned up, or in some cases, just fed little by little into a fire, starting on Christmas Day, and then the 12 days total that followed. And the idea here is that there is a light in the darkest of days. So there's imagery here that is glorious and beautiful that meets us, and it's a reclaiming of this soul invictus um, and appointing to Christ not only to celebrate what He has done in His arrival and His finished work on Easter, but also what He has promised to do, and that is return, return. So here I am thinking about the Yule log and. I'm studying my passage while my fireplace is on, right? I'm working from home this day, my feet are propped up, I've got the verses, and right behind these verses, I see my fireplace burning. And I thought, you know, fire is awesome when it's contained. That fire that is bringing light into the room and warmth could just as easily burn my house to the ground. And then I began to stare at these verses and I thought, you know, there is another connection with the Yule log. The Yule log does point us to a day in which Christ will return. There is an aspect of Advent where not only we look to his arrival, but we also anticipate his return. There is light, yes, when he comes, but there is also fire. There is also fire. And it's right for us to have this in view. I know it's Christmas time, and this may not have been your first thought of a Christmas passage, but it was indeed God's plan for our day together in His Word. He ordains this. This is expository preaching. Here's our verses before us. So when you think about Advent, yes, think righteousness and the return of Christ, and we long for that. The weary world rejoices at the Savior who has been born and all that he has accomplished. But there is a day that is coming when he will return and it will be a very different kind of arrival. It is a day that will be filled with wrath and fury. It is referred to often as the day of the Lord. For believers, this will be a day of great joy. We will be um, with Him. We will be together with Him A perfect peace, not in threat at all of fire or flames or judgment or wrath. But for all who are not looking to Jesus as Savior and Lord, it will be a day of dread that will be the start of fire that will never end. So I was thinking about this and The thought of Malachi 4 jumped into my mind. Listen to how this goes. For behold, he says, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. This is the same Jesus who was born in a manger it will leave them neither root nor branch but look at the contrast for you who believe and trust in Jesus as savior and lord for you who fear my name the son of righteousness shall arise that is the invincible son with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from a stall what a contrast of experience for those who believe overwhelming joy, celebration. Our King, our triumphant King is establishing His kingdom. And for those who don't know Him as Savior, Lord, and King, absolute horror. Justice will fall. Fire is coming. Lessons from the Yule Log. That's what I learned as I studied these verses this week and my fireplace burned. And so what I want to encourage you to do is when you think about the, you know, the Yule log burning on the, in the fireplace, or some people put it on their TV and it just loops, I guess. It's like a fire on your TV. Um, or when you get the cake and you're cutting the slice, think, yes, oh, light in the darkest of days. And at the same time, think preparation. Be ready because fire is coming. He is coming with fire. So lessons from the eulog. Let's get into these verses. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verses 1 and 2. A reminder to remember. Now remember the context, the whole flow of this is that we've been warned for the last two weeks here about false teachers and how we must be on our guard. These wolves are dangerous and they are, they are destroying people, leading thousands, scores of people to the fires of hell. This is the context that we have had, and it continues today. A reminder to remember. Peter says this now, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. First Peter being the first, we studied that last year. He calls them beloved. I love that. Beloved. These are fellow believers. He's writing to them. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder so that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, there's some cool language in here. He is saying, listen, there are some important things that you might easily forget or not emphasize enough, and I want you to have them at the forefront. Well, what are those things? One of the things for believers is grow. Grow in the grace that He has provided. He has provided all that you need. Now, grow. Be set apart from this dark world. Another thing that we've just seen in the previous weeks is be on guard. Watch out for false teachers. Don't be led astray. Stay true. And he's pointing here to the Word of God. The remembering of the the holy prophets and what they have spoken. That matters. It's not just, you know, been there, done that. I read them once and we're good. No, it's they speak to help us today. And look at the connection here of Christ. The commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Your, they're your apostles. Not as if they've come from us, like here today. There's not an ongoing apostleship in this world. There were apostles appointed by Christ himself, and they were given to the church to bless her, to strengthen her, to give revelation to her that was from the Lord himself to preserve and protect God's people. So in a sense, you could say this, pay attention, Christian, to the Word of God. Pay attention to the Word of God. Keep it at the forefront of your thinking. Don't don't put it aside. Don't read it and walk away from it. God has equipped you for the days ahead. How has He done it? In His Word. This word is ever relevant. There's never a point in time where we look at the word and say, well, you know, I guess it applied to them back there. uh, But there's really no value for me to read my Bible today. No, not true. What you face today, you find equipment here to live it, to walk in obedience. What we will face in the days ahead, we have everything that we need right here. Be a people of the word. Now, he goes on from here. To speak about those who who mock or ridicule the return of Christ in the last days. Verses 3 and 4. Ridiculing Christ's return. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffing. Following their own sinful desires. We'll just stop there in verse 3. Knowing this first of all. So I'm going to remind you. What you've got to remember here that is there's been a prediction that has been put forward. And I'm reminding you of this. In the last days, people are going to come to lead you astray. They will scoff at the Word of God. They will scoff in order to follow their own sinful desires. Hmm. Reminds me of Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these, now note this, in these last days... That's that's what like as he was writing the author of Hebrews is writing this and he's referring to the last days if he saw them as the last days how much more so the days in which we find ourselves in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world so the last days in the last days scoffers will come friends they were scoffing in Peter's day, and they are scoffing all the more in our day. There are scoffers. They mock the word of God. They belittle the promises and the predictions of the prophets. They make fun of those who would take seriously the warning and heed the call to flee from the wrath to come. This is how Paul put it in 2 Timothy. Again, in referring uh, he, your apostles, Paul is in view here. He's one of those voices. Understand this, that in the last days, that's our days too, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. That word there uh, can also be translated um, reviling, right? That's our word. Scoffing, mocking, reviling, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control this is an echo of these false teachers and the lives that they demonstrate the fruit that we are to know them by they will be brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god following their own desires you catch this They're scoffing, following their own desires. And then this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That is the wolf clothed in the sheep's wool, right? Hiding itself, saying, listen, this is a form of godliness. This is what it looks like. Follow me, follow me to the fire. And then the call is, Avoid such people. Avoid them. Be discerning. Look at the life. Look at the fruit. And avoid those who would do and say these things. Lead you in that direction. Hmm. False teaching and cynicism. I was just struck by this. You know, I I remember being in situations where I thought something was kind of cool. And and people around me thought it was kind of cool. But then there was that one friend of mine who's like, this is stupid. This is, let's, let's do something else. This is dumb. And then and you're automatically like, oh, wait, is it? Am I Am I just like caught up in this? Or is this really stupid? Is this really dumb? And that, that cynicism is toxic, isn't it? It's like poison, just a little drop of cynicism. I didn't think it was great. That was terrible. I can't believe those people are falling for that, right? And, and all of a sudden, it just kind of begins to move and grow. It's easy to play the cynic in our day. Some of you might be here today with your arms crossed. I'm here because of her, right? <laughs> That's why I'm here. I don't, it's not like I want to be here. It's Christmas. Fine. I had to go. I think, what, what do you expect? The cynic. I want to encourage you to hear the warning of God's word today. Cynicism, especially that kind of cynicism that would doubt the Word of God, that would stand in judgment over it or even mock the reality that the Word of God portrays for us today. Don't fall prey to cynicism. Don't stand off. Don't be the skeptic. Listen to the Word of God and let it ring out today. The scoffers come to excuse their sin. They scoff. Why? Because they want pleasure, right? It's for their own pleasure. That's what They're scoffing. They're like, the day of the Lord. Are you kidding me? Pfft, whatever. We can live however we want. We're not worried. They scoff to assuage their guilt. They don't want to deal with the guilt that they know. They feel it. Their conscience bears witness inside of them. And what are they going to do with that? This is one of the ways God loves the world. It's a a love that demonstrates conviction of sin, and it's written on our hearts. And when we sin, even as unsaved people, there is a weight, and it has to be addressed. And oftentimes, ridiculing, scoffing helps to suppress that guilt, push it down. They scoff to recruit others to do the same. Sin loves company. Rebels Like armies. So, scoffing is a recruitment strategy. And sometimes the scoffing targets those who seek to live lives of holiness, to put them down, to make godliness look strange and worldliness look normal. They scoff in disbelief of God's word. Hmm. Be warned watch out for the scoffers. They can build a huge audience. They can grow, oh my goodness, you can grow a huge army off of disgruntled people. Well, I grew up in the church, and those, those church people, those, oh, well, you should follow me, right? Because we we're going to gather around how much we dislike church people. I look back on my time at Mars Hill in Michigan, and I remember saying to, to our full staff, the 70 people, I remember saying this flat out, Guys, I can identify all the things that we exist not to do, right? We're not going to be one of those fundamentalist churches where we're saying we're not going to do this, we're not interested in in legalism, we're not going to do this, we're not going to have those weird signs with the words on it that you always have to change, and they say those dumb, you know, Christianese things, and all the things, the mocking and the ridiculing of all the churches around us in West Michigan. And... Was there a reason for some of that? Absolutely sure. No doubt. Was there some 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 legalism there? Yes, no doubt. But when a church gathers around all of the things that we're not going to be about, it's very hard to identify, yeah, but what are we about? And I was so struck by that. I had to bring it up like, guys, I'm like, what are we about? What are we for? Because all I hear is all this stuff like this. We don't want to do that. Look at those people over there. We're not going to be like that. Hmm. Turns out that that was a signal of a major problem in that church. A failure to love Christ and the gospel and keep that at the center. Scoffing and disbelief. What do the scoffers say? Well, this is what they say. Where is the promise of His coming? Wait. <laughs> He's coming again? Yeah, right. Then they go on to say, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's going to come? No, he's not. That's clearly not what's going to happen. Look, history shows. He's not coming. If this is just the way it is. You know what? Do your thing. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about the concept. That's what they're saying. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't get me confused, kids. Last week I was nervous because I had a whole slide of terrible things and then I was like, but I hope I clarified. That's not what we're saying here. Stay true to the Lord. He is coming again. Where is the promise of His coming? Uniformitarianism is the word. That's a big word. It's fun to say. Here's what it means. It means just this. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning, creation. That's, that's just all the same. Now, here's the amazing thing that happens when you adopt this worldview. <laughs> Number one, you, you, you have to work hard to adopt this worldview because you have to purposely ignore some things. We're going to get to that in a second. But one of the most important starting points is there is no God. If that is your starting point, there is no God, then I have to build a worldview that can account for what I see, right? Darwinism, that's where it comes from. Evolution, this, this needs to be called out. Uniformitarianism is this assumption that everything continues as it always has. That's not true. It's just not true. You go to uh, the scientists, I, I googled this yesterday, because it's, it's, it's ever-growing, right? This number ever-grows. Ever how old is the universe? This is the somewhat agreed upon number. 13.8 billion years old. And you're kind of like, how did they get to the point eight? You know, <laughs> here, here, this is, I, I think this is probably the discussion in, in the back room. If we say 14, that's just too clear that we're just completely, you know, spitballing it. Let's say 13.8. That sounds better. Like we know something. How do they arrive at this number? Here's what you do you take lunacy plus tons of years and you get science. That's the combination that this is. You cannot add enough years to make sense of what you see. The design of God's creation proves he is the God behind it, the creator. You you can't add enough years. And I, you watch that number will go up and up and up, just as it has my whole life. More and more and more years. Why? Well, I guess if enough time passes, this probably would happen. I you know. I took a, a, a set of Legos and crumbled them all apart, put them in a paper bag and just started shaking one day. I want to teach the kids how this works. Shake a bag of Legos for 13.8 billion years and what are you going to have you're going to have a constructed lego set no you're going to have powder god creates time does the opposite it's the law of entropy so you go to the grand canyon the naturalist will give you this long speech about how this is continuing on as it always has that's why the gorge is so deep That river just cuts it all the way through there. Now, does the river cut? Yes. But like that? No. No. Why will they not give account for miraculous moments or cataclysmic uh, judgments? Well, because there is no God. We can't give that room. If we go to that place, then we have to reckon with the reality of a creator. And so science becomes Silly. Foolishness. Accountability is at the heart of this. This is what is being avoided. If we can prove that there is no God and come up with enough justification by science, you know, quote-unquote science, and enough years, then we can get away with what we want to get away with. We can live as if there is no God. That's the goal. Sometimes you get an honest atheist. Aldous Huxley Came along in, in 1966, he was, wrote, wrote the book, Confessions of a Professed Atheist. Listen to what he said. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none. And, he said, look at the cause and effect. And then I was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Is that science? That is not science. That is the promotion of falsehood. For myself, as no doubt, for most of my contemporaries, what a view into the world of 1966, the scientific community. Imagine even now. He says, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously a liberation from a certain political and economic system and a liberation from a certain system of morality. There's conscience that's being acknowledged. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There's some honesty. Hmm. You know, what's amazing is how clear the Bible says this. It's just as clear as day. We've known this has been the case because the Bible declares it in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth that they know. They, they suppress it with their sin. They push it down. They appease their conscience. They, they sear over their conscience, push down the guilt. What is the truth that they know? Well, For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's not hard to arrive at this truth. It's actually plain. It's plain. Why? Well, because God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to them? For His, that is God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been not sort of or difficultly, but clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. Why does this matter? It leaves no one with an excuse. It leaves no one outside of accountability. Not the man who lives on the far remote island who never hears the gospel. He is without excuse because of what surrounds him. The creation of God declares his glory and declares his attributes And it shows that there is a rightful accountability for all that He has made, including us. Paul goes on and he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They knew Him. Everyone knows, not only that there is a God, but they know about Him. They know what He's like, at least through what He has made. And they reject His worship. They don't honor Him as God. They don't give thanks to Him. But what do they do instead? They became futile in their thinking. 13.8 billion years futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Who are you going to trust to give an account of where things began and how old things are? I'm trusting God because he was there, and no one else was, right? These scientists who are claiming there is no God, this is all just some random accident, this is molecules to man evolution, Big Bang, on and on and on, I got no confidence in anything they're saying. You know why? They weren't there. And the way that they date the earth is by the assumption that things continue as they always have. Not true. Not true. Not true. That's why when we landed on the moon, our astronauts didn't sink in the dust. They landed with a little puff of dust. The full estimation was that they would sink deep. And on and on and on. Proclamation of God is in His creation. Now, verses 5 and 6. Righteous Creator, righteous Judge. Righteous creator, righteous judge. Peter goes on, verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact. That's so, so significant. Look at those, those words. They're in your Bible, friends. They, that is, those who scoff, false teachers, those who don't believe the Word of God, they deliberately have to overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water. How? By the word of God. He created ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he created. How did he do it? Words. He brought it forth. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Wow. What's he saying? Well... If you want to try to get out of accountability to a God who is your creator, you have to deny his existence and try to make up things about what, like why, are, why am I here and what's going on? What do I make sense of all of this? And, and this is what you have to do. You have to not just overlook, you have to deliberately overlook. You have to push it down. The fact of creation, it is a fact. Your Bible confirms it. It's not just, you know, Folklore at the beginning of your Bible that's kind of choose, choose to believe it or not. No, it is true. What it says in the first verse is true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator. And that means we are accountable to him. He is the righteous one. He is the, the righteous creator. He is also the righteous judge. And so Peter points to this, and he says, By means of these, that is the water and the word, God employed both in creation and in judgment. Look at the connection here he draws. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So do things continue as they always have been? No, they don't. Because we haven't always been. This world has not always been. God has always been the self-existent one and he is the creator. He started this all. He, it's, it's his work. And then you start at Genesis 1, and you make it to Genesis chapter 6 before he's like, all right, judgment. He's coming. Deliberately overlooking the fact of the flood. And I'm not talking regional flood. That's silly. That's silly. The, the Bible leaves no room for just some localized tsunami-like event. No, this is a global flood where He wipes out all of humanity and animal life that walks on the land. Cleans it out. Years ago, I preached a sermon on the flood. And these are great toys, right? So don't, don't I'm not raining on your parade, these are wonderful toys. They're so cute, right? But friends, the story of Noah and the ark is not about the cute little animals. It is about the wrath of God. It is the wrath of God. Estimates of the the global population at the time of the flood are somewhere between four and six billion people, okay? Not a few thousand. Talking billions of people and God says to Noah, I'm going to save you by my grace. I'm going to save you and your family. A total of eight people. Eight human beings on the ark. And two of every living thing that walks on the land. So he brings them in and, and he, everything else he kills. He kills. Why? Sin. Rebellion. Mocking. Scoffing. Disbelief idolatry things do not continue as they always have peter says you are choosing to overlook the fact of the most catastrophic judgment the world has ever experienced why would we overlook that well, because accountability is proclaimed in a global flood i preached that sermon in california And the next week, there was an apology given for the offense that that sermon may have been to people. And I still scratch my head. Why would we ever apologize for the most catastrophic, cataclysmic display of judgment the Lord proclaimed to us in His Word? This is not something we apologize for or tiptoe around. We declare it. Why? Because we know That he is a judge. And that judgment is coming again. That's where we're going to see in the next verses. It is a judgment of water that washed the world of sin, sparing only eight people and those that God kept on the ark. Who closed the door of the ark? Who closed it? Do you remember this? They went in, all the animals were brought in, and the Lord closed the door of the ark And sealed it. And as the waters rose, all the scoffers who made fun of Moses for year after year after year, who was a herald of righteousness, turn, repent, judgment's coming. What do you mean, Noah? It's going to flood. They're like, it's never rained. There's no water around here. You're building a boat. You're a fool. And he's like, listen to me. Repent. Turn. Judgment is coming. And they laughed. And the day that the flood came, they drowned as they beat on the boat. Let us in, Noah, let us in. He couldn't if he wanted to. God sealed the door and everybody died. That is your God, Christian. He is both a creator, glorious creator, and he is righteous in that, and he is a judge. A righteous judge. That's why it speaks about walking in the fear of the Lord. We walk in the fear of the Lord. Obedience and reverence. We don't scoff at Him. Mock His words. Take Him lightly. So verse 7. Merry Christmas. <laughs> the sun will return and the earth will burn. This is what Peter says, and this is, again, I, I, I didn't line this up, this is what God ordained for us to be hearing today. And so the Yule log points us to this as well. The sun will return and the earth will burn. Listen to what he says. By the same word, that is, the, the way the heavens were made, uh, uh, the, the heavens and the earth now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That is the same God who created, the same God who destroyed with the water is keeping, storing up the heavens and this earth, friends, this earth. So, there's a word about um, stewarding creation. Um, Christians should care for this earth, yes, but let me just be clear this earth is not intended to last forever. God has stored up fire to destroy this earth. So all of this activism that gets really kind of militant and almost, in in many churches, it replaces the gospel. This is what we're about. We're about saving the planet. You're not going to save the planet. You can't save the planet because God is going to burn it with fire. Should we care about the planet? Yes, we're called the steward. Just like Adam and Eve, we're called the steward of the garden. We should be wise and, and steward well. But this, this environmentalism stuff has gone off the charts. Crazy. It's being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of who? The ungodly. Those who refuse to repent. Who mock at the word of God. Who, who make light of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Who just walk through the Christmas season as like, just, it's just tradition. It's just what we do. There's no actual, you know, events here that we're celebrating. It's just punch the time card, Christmas, yay, stand, sing, then go, come back next year. Fire. Fire. Stored up for Fire. Turn on your fireplace when you get home and just look at that flame and be reminded of this verse. This is no light matter. Hmm. Isaiah 66 goes like this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger in fury. Now, the fury of God is not out of control. It's never under, uh, out of control. God is always in perfect control. He brings His righteous indignation in exact proportion to what is due, and that is described here as fury. And His rebuke will come with flames of fire, for by fire Will the Lord enter into judgment and his sword by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Why the warning then? Are we are we just like, oh, this is awesome. It's going to burn. No. The warning is a loving call. Don't take lightly the call of the Lord to repent of your sins today. This is God loving us by putting this before us. The warnings of God are loving. This is Jesus, your Savior, Christian. This is what he says in Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and what? Destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. What does this mean? They were living as if there was no God. Like, not all these things are bad, right? They're just just living. But what are they not doing? Fearing the Lord, worshiping Him, obeying Him, serving Him. On the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And then Jesus says this, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Fire will fall. And the destruction that takes place there is a fire that is never quenched. It is never put out. A couple weeks, Alex is going to look more into that uh, as he preaches through verse Verse 10. The return of the invincible son is a return of both righteousness and light and glory and also it is a return that marks intense wrath-filled fury, indignation, and retribution. This is our text. So the question is, Where do you stand with this king, this sovereign? If he were to return this afternoon, and who's to say he won't come to catch up his bride? It could happen today, right? It could happen today. The imminent return. The question is, are you ready to meet him? Are you in Christ? I was thinking about Noah and the ark. That's that's like a living, real parable of the gospel. God's like, I'm going to destroy everyone, but I have made a way for you to be saved, Noah, and it's going to be through the ark, through the ark. You get in that ark and I will seal it up and I will keep you in the midst of my wrath and I will protect you and I will deliver you through the wrath that I unleash on this earth. The ark is where you must be today, my friends. That's the call of the gospel. The ark is Jesus Christ. God has made a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven, to find peace with God, to be reconciled, to be rescued from the wrath of God that is coming. Have you run to Him? Turn from your sins. embraced Him as King and Savior and hope. A lot of times this, this turn or burn thing gets written off. But let me just say, If you don't turn, you will burn. That's not heretical preaching. That is straight text call to to, to the gospel. It's a loving call. It's not unloving to encourage people to turn from imminent destruction and run and be saved from certain fire. Turn to Jesus Christ. The door is open today. Listen to how believers from Macedonia commended the Thessalonicans. I had to practice that. The Thessalonican believers. They lived in Thessaloniki. Okay? Listen to what they said about their fellow believers. This is Paul encouraging them. He said, they told me how you turned from, uh, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. May that be true of all in this place. May you turn from your idols, from self and sin and darkness, and run to Jesus to love him and serve him and trust him and be delivered from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for pointers and reminders that you give. We think about your word and the way that you love us through your word, how you equip us to live in our, our days and these last days that we live in. Oh, there's so much mocking and scoffing and ridiculing of your word. May we listen to your word. May we embrace you and trust you, the God of your word. May we believe all that you've said in your word is true, authoritatively true, even when people with lab jackets claim to be wise and say, 13.8 billion years. May we trust you, the simplicity, the clarity of your word, and may we know that we are accountable to you, and may we then run to Jesus Christ, the provision of salvation that you have given us, The only way that sinners can be saved, may we be trusting Him every day, clinging to Him, believing and and hoping and and waiting for His coming. Father, use us, as I prayed earlier, to reach as many as possible, just to reach the lost. I pray that we would be found as, as very vocal witnesses of this good news. Even this coming Sunday, Lord, use us to invite those that need to be here to hear this good news. I pray that you would bring them. I pray that you would save them. Strengthen us to walk in these last days, Lord, and keep these things at the forefront of our thinking. Remind us as we see the fire in the fireplace or the Yule log. Remind us as we read in our word that you are a God who has promised and this fire is coming. We have work to do. Oh, Lord, we long for the day that you return we, we long to be with you, and we pray that you would use us while we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.